Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. And today I have with us Deanna Shimoda, who is several different titles here, CEO of Growth Mode Marketing, 20-year B2B marketer, that's amazing, and creator of the fellow podcast, The Demand Gen Fix. So everybody check out afterwards. But thanks for joining us, Deanna. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I sound so old when you say I have over 20 years of marketing experience. (laughs) It's a medal of achievement. (laughs) I'm almost there, almost there, right? (laughs) There we go. That's what I look for when I'm hiring for my, like just the number of years, I know it shouldn't matter. Does it get into ageism? I don't know, but it it impresses me. And it makes me think like, you know what you're doing because it's right there because you're in this, you're doing it and successful after 20 years, you know it. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I feel like when I was in my 20s, I thought I was such a good marketer. And now in hindsight, I'm like, I was a pretty legit marketer. But boy, am I a lot smarter now than I was yeah. back then. There is something to be said about experience and knowing what works and what doesn't work and kind of going through the grind and learning your lessons. Right, exactly. Something experience is necessary in some cases. So kudos. And speaking of, at getting to these 20 years, if you could tell me a little bit about how you first got into B2B marketing and rose to where you are today. Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is when I went to college, I did go to college for marketing. So I got a degree in marketing communications. I had this plan that I was going to do PR in the dairy industry, which, you know, there's a whole story behind dairy. that. But yeah. <laughs> so how I ended up at B2B is a great question. But once I graduated college, it was 2000. It wasn't the greatest market. You're trying to find a job. And I was looking for jobs in the dairy industry, but also outside of the dairy industry. And I ended up actually at a nonprofit organization, which was a wonderful organization that did education and training to uplift minorities in my local community here in Minnesota. I got laid off because they had some financial difficulties and and marketing, I was like their first marketing hire ever, wasn't the priority versus being able to continue to provide the services to the community that they were doing. One of the board of director members for that organization ended up referring me into the company that he founded. And it was called Clark Bardis Consulting. And it was in the B2B space. And so I landed in that company And every job I had since then has been in the B2B space. I just ended up kind of going down that path. And it's a far cry from PR in the dairy industry, but I, I, you know, truly (laughs) I haven't looked back since I got into B2B because I just find it so fascinating how complex marketing can be on this side of the equation. Yeah. It's funny. I, I feel like B2C to B2B although there's many variations of that right in between, but B2C to B2B, I see more often than B2B going into B2C. I wonder why that is. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. 
I was listening to one of your more recent podcast episodes and your guest had said, I think B2B is harder than B2C. And I was like shaking my head along. I'm like, I totally agree. I think that it's more like fun and sexy to be in B2C, but B2B certainly is a different beast. And I think there's lots of opportunities if you're a marketer to really do a lot of different things than you would in B2C. So I think a lot of times people kind of go down one path or the other, but yeah, you don't see a lot of B2C jumping into B2B and probably because of the complexity of the B2B side. If you're not already there, it's harder to make that jump. Yeah, so interesting. I wonder there's um there's a few companies in B2B that kind of do some similar things to B2C like they do the billboards and the TV, yeah. but you see that a lot less with most B2B companies. So, I'm curious right. to you as your career progressed, when did you decide and what made you decide to open up your own agency? Like what signals told you it was time? So when I first graduated college, I actually thought, I want to work in the agency world. And so instead of taking a full-time job, I took a short-term gig as a summer intern at a marketing agency. And Mm. I thought it was really fun. And that actually was a a B2C agency. But then I went to the nonprofit and kind of forgot about the agency world. So it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, someday I'm going to work on the agency side again. I had kind of moved on from that. And then eight years ago, I was a vice president of marketing at a software company in the network security space. And they were private equity backed. And they brought me in to build the marketing foundation from the ground up, build the team out. And we're like, here's a budget figure out how to help us grow, you know, like 10x in five years. It was a very big undertaking. And I was looking for marketing agencies that understood where we were at as an organization and was finding as I was talking to different marketing agencies locally and across the U.S. trying to find a B2B marketing agency that I thought was a good fit for us, that there just aren't as many B2B marketing agencies out there. There are so Mm -hmm. many B2C and there are so many hybrid agencies where I would go and I would talk to them and they'd be like, yes, we specialize in B2B. And then you'd look at their book of business and it would be like at least 80% B2C and the other would be B2B. And it's like, okay, that's not a specialization in my book. (laughs) That's, uh, we'll take the revenue, but we're really not experts in it. And even the B2B organizations that I talked to didn't always understand where I was coming from. Because I think a lot of times in the agency world, people land in an agency fresh out of college Mm -hmm. and their whole professional career, like it's very common for them to grow up in the agency world and never actually work on the corporate side. And so what I found is I'm going and I'm having these conversations with these agency leaders And I'm like, okay, here's the situation. We are supposed to be in hyper growth. Right now we're struggling with leads and really getting traction. My CEO and board of directors and investors are telling me we need leads. We need them yesterday. I'm looking for an agency to help me kind of navigate this and, and build a strategy and execute on it that will work. And the response back would be like, we're going to help you build this beautiful brand experience. And I was like, hold up. This (laughs) is not what I'm talking about. Now, as a marketer, I fully appreciate 
the value that brand brings into it. And I think today more than ever, that is a really key part about being able to build leads. But the way they were positioning the conversation made it clear to me that they didn't understand what it was like to stand in my shoes, to have mm-hmm. the pressure from the CEO and the board of directors and the investors to be able to show them, this is what we're spending in marketing. This is how we're going to grow. This is why we need to make these investments and the ROI that we can expect from it. And so I was having lunch with a former colleague and we were talking about that. And I was like, I'm just so frustrated. I can't find an agency that really understands what we're trying to do here. And she was Mm -hmm. a VP of marketing in a software company as well. And she said, you know what? I've had the same experience. Maybe we should start an agency. So we went back to eating our salads like, oh, yeah, good idea. And then like 15 minutes later, she's like, no, you know what? I'm serious. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? I think I'm serious too. So wow, the rest is history. We ended up a couple months later starting growth mode marketing to kind of fill that gap of you have these high growth companies that or are expected to be high growth that are trying to navigate all the challenges and build a long-term strategy that will help them accelerate their revenue growth. And there's not agencies out there that really have a lot of experience in that. Yeah. And that corporate experience. I love that. So right. it all started over salad one day. <laughs> but it sure it's, did. It, how all great thriving companies begin, right, is identifying a gap in the market and you can fill that gap. So kudos, that's amazing. I know a lot of people now, because of all of the layoffs, right? A lot of people are starting to do their own consulting and creating kind of team of one or solopreneur journeys. Do you have any advice for someone going in that direction or if they should create an agency and what really that difference is, if any? Yeah. One thing I will tell people is it's not as easy as it sounds. We as an agency, you know, anytime we're advertising that we've got open positions, it's not uncommon to get people to apply who have been like freelancers for say five, 10 years. And I always ask Mm -hmm. them, okay, you've been doing your own thing. You've had so much flexibility. You've been able to really like kind of live the dream, right? Why would you want to come back into working for someone else? And the answer is always the same. They're like, it's a grind. You know, it's feast or famine. And I don't like having to constantly find new work. Because when you got the work, being a freelancer is great, right? But when that work runs out and you have to go try to find it again, it's not easy. It's not for everybody. And I think for a lot of people that steady paycheck you know what it's going to be every single month like is is an easier pill to swallow and and to manage than it is to all right I don't know if I'm going to make any money this week so I better make a lot of money next week like it's a little more up and down for a lot of freelancers and so my advice to you if you're thinking about doing it is really think through how are you going to build up your client base do you have the stomach to ride the roller coaster of oh my gosh, you're so busy. You're like, what was I thinking? To next week, you've got nothing to do and you're back in panic mode. Yeah, yeah, the ups <laughs> and downs. See, I'm I'm not built for that. I don't have the stomach for it. I'm not a roller coaster fan <laughs> in any way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah, and, so and if you decide instead of being a freelancer, you're going to start an agency, the roller coaster is even crazier. So <laughs> just have yeah. the stomach for it if you're going to do it. And you have the weight of people that are relying on you, right? 
Yes. Suddenly it's not just your own bills you have to make sure get paid. It's you have to make sure the people that you hire and work for you, that you have the ability to pay them as well. Yeah. The pressure. Well, let's see. There's a few different questions I want to go down our roads here, but I'm going to go into what you're doing for your clients, right? And obviously things are changing every single year, but what are you seeing working for your clients? Um, Are there any trends that you can share or a lack of trends? Just what's on, and then we'll get into lead gen, demand gen. I know we wanted to go down that path too, but curious just for growth in general, revenue, driving revenue for your B2B clients. What's working right now? Help us all out. (laughs) Yeah, so Growth One Marketing, we are a demand generation agency. So we always say that we're helping B2B technology companies break through the clutter of a crowded market so they can crush the revenue targets. And that is because if you look at the way that people are buying today, and this research is directly Mm -hmm. from Gartner, we're moving towards the reality that B2B buyers have completed up to 80% of their purchase decision before they choose to engage with a sales rep. And 72% of B2B buyers would prefer to have zero interactions with a sales rep during the purchase process. What that translates to is people are very reluctant to have a conversation with sales and to engage with them early on in their decision process, right? And if you step back and think about that, that means that those buyers are almost made up their mind by the time that they're willing to talk to you. So from a marketing standpoint, the advice that I have for organizations is to make sure that your digital footprint becomes your best sales rep. Because by the time that buyer has made 80% of their decision, they've shortlisted you. And so if you haven't built that brand awareness, credibility, and trust in the market with them long before they're in market to buy, you're missing out on the opportunity. And the opportunities usually are not so plentiful that no one has any problems finding leads because in a normal year, only 5% of companies in your total addressable market or your ideal customer profile are going to be in market to buy at any time, which means the other Mm -hmm. 95%, they're not there. And if you're selling like an enterprise level software, or anything that has somewhat of a substantial price to it, you're not going to convince them to buy now if they haven't come to that conclusion, right? Yeah. The economy hasn't been great. I've actually read in articles that have said as companies pull back on spending, the reality is that 5% of companies in market is probably closer to 1% now. Wow. So yeah, it's depressing if if you're in sales and and you're in charge of building revenue, right? And so how do you combat that? You've got to be able to capture the demand for the companies that are actually in market. But the only way to do that is to make sure that they know that you exist and that they've already kind of bought into your brand and like you and are continually engaging with your content. And so when you say, what is working now? It's, I feel like content marketing has always been there. Yeah. And even before content marketing was named content marketing, it was a big proponent of a marketing strategy, right? Like without content, you have no marketing strategy. But Mm -hmm. it's kind of having this moment, this rebirth, because as companies are realizing like the tried and true 
marketing tactics that we've done in the past are not producing results. We've got to go back to the table and we've got to look at how we're using our content to get it out in front of the ideal customer profile and make sure that they know who we are. Yeah. Have you seen, are there any, to drive this awareness and get your content in front of that 1%, but ideally also a larger percentage. (laughs) So when they become that 1% that's buying, they're ready, they know you. But are there any channels that are working to the best consistently or has it differed from client to client and where their ICP is? Yeah, the way we see it, it differs from client to client. And the reason being like, I am a firm believer that you have to, if you are in a very crowded market, you need to identify an ideal customer profile. And that's different than a buyer persona, which I don't think everyone realizes because a buyer persona, it's like, here's the individual roles that might be involved in the decision process. The ideal Mm -hmm. customer profile are, here are the companies and the key characteristics of them that would be the best fit for our product. So they're more likely to purchase from us Mm -hmm. at a really, really high level. There's so much more detail that goes into this, but you might like look at it as, okay, we're niching down. And that doesn't mean you're never selling to anyone outside of your niche. But what it means is from a marketing standpoint, let's say we're selling to HR tech buyers that are between 50 and 500 employees, right? Okay. There's a lot of technology solutions in the HR space that target that market. Now, let's say I have 20 of those vendors are marketing to me. They all sound the same. What happens? I start to price shop or I'm going to pick the one where I feel like I most connect with personally with a sales rep. Uh The point of an ideal customer profile is you're really narrowing down your audience. So instead of marketing to every employer that has between 50 and 500 employees and and maybe a few other characteristics you're looking at and you're saying okay what if they have this type of organizational structure and what if these are the type of clients that they work with and what if they're in the manufacturing industry like you start to narrow it down that ideal customer profile then the next step is from our perspective like what is your unique point of view in the market And it's got to be hyper-focused to that ideal customer profile. So what you're starting to do is developing the story and the pain points that you're going to talk to specific to that ideal customer profile. And in turn, now I'm going to create a content plan that is designed to attract that type of buyer. And the benefit of getting that hyper-focus and doing that is that you're creating a message that will resonate better with them because now I have 20 HR tech vendors marketing to me, but one of them is talking about the pain points specifically to managing a workforce within a manufacturing plant and Mm -hmm. how you've got shift differentials and high turnover and there might be safety hazards on the manufacturing floor and there are high training standards to put people into positions like all those things now think about it if your marketing is talking about those and everyone else is more like trying to be everything to everyone yeah one of you is going to stand out in their mind so going back to your original question about is there a tactic that's working better 
if you know your ideal customer profile well, what you need to find out is where does that ideal customer profile typically consume content and go for information resources and who do they trust and who do they rely on and then leveraging those channels. So it's not the same for everybody. And maybe digital advertising works really well for one company because that's where their ideal customer profile like hangs out. But for another, it would be a complete waste of money because your people aren't there. Like let's say you've got one crew hanging out on LinkedIn and another's not. You're not gonna advertise on LinkedIn or put content on LinkedIn if it's not gonna reach those people. Yeah, that's so true. The importance of knowing your ICP to a T, right? The more defined you get, the easier it is to target them and know, just really get in there with them and become one of them. Yeah, and honestly, it's more cost effective from a marketing standpoint, because if you stop and think about it, like if you're going after a really big market and you're trying to be everyone to everyone, to build up that database, it's going to cost more to purchase digital ads it's going to cost more to do abm campaigns it's going to cost more like everything is at scale larger if you narrow down your audience and it's much more niche you're not going to have as much competition with the digital advertising you're not going to have as many companies that you're trying to do abm with you're not going to have to build up as big of a database and so there is that aspect to it and and i think a hesitation that many companies have when it's like, let's define an ideal customer profile is they're like, I don't want to be boxed in. Yeah. Like I'm selling an HR technology solution in the benefit space. And I'll ask them like, who's your ideal customer profile? They'll be like, any employer that offers benefits. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Holy crap. Yes, you can sell to all of them, but do you really think that your message is hitting the mark if it's that diluted? Probably not. Yeah. That's hard because you're right. Everybody's so used to personalization right now. And we don't think about yeah. it when we're defining our ICP, right? That they want to feel like they're we're talking to them one-to-one, which will only right. happen if you get super tailored to what they're looking for. How would yeah. you deal with if a company came to you that was more horizontal? So let's say a ClickUp or Monday or Asana, right? Where it's project management tool, but can be used by the marketing team can be used by the finance team, really by any department or the entire department, like the whole company in all departments. (laughs) What would you suggest a company like that does where they really, they can be at all, but for marketing, that makes it really difficult. Yeah. I mean, those are great examples because those are absolutely the kind of products where they could say, well, anybody that needs project management, we can support them, right? Everyone uses us. (laughs) Yeah. If you go and you look at those companies, you know, and I've looked at a lot of them just because from a marketing agency standpoint, growth mode marketing, we're like, we need a project management tool. Let's figure it out. (laughs) They are doing marketing to, I think, what they consider ideal customer profiles or segments because they'll have a whole, you know, like marketing strategy around how do we target marketing agencies? And so Mm -hmm. you go to their website, you'll see like, the different kind of groups that they work with and you can go and click in there but I guarantee you from a marketing standpoint like they probably started out trying to be everything to everyone we're like okay we've got to narrow this down a little bit and they started creating marketing programs for each of those individual groups now yeah 
I would suggest, and a lot of times we're working with organizations that are maybe between 10 million and 100 million in revenue that are yeah. trying to figure it out. I mean, if you're in the higher end, you've already kind of figured it out. But on the lower end, where you're trying to figure out how do we accelerate our growth here, we're everything to everyone right now. My recommendation is start with one ideal customer profile. Build the marketing around it, get traction with it. Then you can consider adding another ideal customer profile yeah. to the mix. And as you get good at each of them, you can continue to add until it just like you're so well known in the market that you don't have to specialize specifically in one specific segment or ideal customer profile. Yeah, really good advice. So kind of go still get that ICP and you can do one ICP at a time, even though yeah. horizontal companies might have multiple ICPs. Right. You know, and it probably took them a while. Like they didn't launch them all at once, right? Like it took them a while from a marketing yeah. standpoint to build those out. And now they're well known and more established. And that's why they have multiple. And I understand the hesitation from business leaders of why would we sell to just one market? That's not what I'm saying at all. You can continue yeah. to sell to other organizations that fall out of that ideal customer profile. This is a marketing strategy. It's uh -huh. really customizing and hyper-focusing your marketing content because a smaller audience where you're speaking their language, yeah. you're going to get better traction than if you try to market to everybody all at once and the same yeah. way. Yeah. What is that phrase? I say this all the time in different variations and forums, but it's if you try to market to everyone, you're marketing to no one. And you can yeah. kind of take out marketing True. and put in any, any other word, right? If you're trying <laughs> to do everything, then you're actually doing nothing. It works for almost everything. <laughs> right. Well, the reality is your message gets so diluted that it resonates with no one. Exactly. Because it starts exactly. to sound like everyone else. And this is a mistake that many organizations make. I mean, we see it all the time. Yeah. So speaking of, you mentioned with um, growth mode marketing that you were a demand gen agency. So before mm -hmm. we turned on the mics, we were talking about demand gen versus lead gen. Can you tell me a little bit more about why your focus is on demand gen and how you differentiate the two? Yeah. So our agency's focus is on demand gen because we found that lead gen, which we have done in the past, just wasn't delivering the results that companies needed. Quite frankly, it was frustrating because they come to us and they're like, we need leads, we need them yesterday. And we're like, all right, let's implement these tried and true programs that have worked at many different organizations. And the results would be less than what everyone was hoping for, right? And the reality yeah. is people are less responsive to some of these marketing tactics than they used to be. And, and a, a very like easy component to understand, you know, that I would classify as, as lead gen, but certainly isn't the only thing in lead gen would be, I'm going to have a research report created in my industry because I want to be an industry expert. And now I'm going to put it out yeah. there on our website. I'm going to do digital ads. We're going to do email. And all you have to do to get this information is fill out the form and then we will send you our PDF, right? And then, Back in the day that worked really well. Now yeah. I can tell you, like I have many organizations I talk to and they're like, Deanna, I'm so frustrated. I feel like my landing page needs to be redesigned because I'm having all these people come to the landing page and nobody's filling out the form. 
But it's like, yeah, yeah, it needs to be redesigned. You need to ditch the form because people That's aren't it. filling it out. With forms, if you're putting an obstacle in front of the content that you think will help build trust and credibility and move people in that decision to choose you, why would you prevent anybody from seeing it, right? And people are yeah. showing some level of interest when they click on it and then they jump because the form's there. So, you know, that's a very basic like lead gen tactic. But back in the day, and, and it still happens at many organizations, I think spurred on by marketing automation and having to measure things and metrics and all that. I was like, great, yeah. we got an MQL. Pass it to our SDR team or pass it to sales and they're going to follow up and run with it. The problem is just because someone wants to read your report does not mean that they're in market to buy. There's a lot mm -hmm. of time and energy and money wasted by organizations where their SDRs and sales reps are chasing these individuals who aren't going to convert, right? So the yeah. challenge becomes it's really slow sales cycles. A lot of them fall out of the pipeline and the close rates are really low, which yeah. means most of those leads are pure crap. They're not yep. actually leads, but we're chasing them anyway. So that's why, you know, as I, I took a hard look at marketing and where it's at and how people are buying, I'm like, you know what? We're not going to do lead gen anymore for our clients. We're going to be a demand generation agency. And mm -hmm. the way that I look at it, the difference is lead generation, your marketing programs are only focused on the 5% of companies that are currently in market. You are asking prospects for a meeting and you're trying to pull them into your sales process. So thinking back to the example I just gave with the forms, if you're calling them an MQL and you're handing them to sales, what's going to happen? Yeah. They're going to go ask them for a meeting. They're going to try to pull them into the sales process because they want that revenue, right? Mm -hmm. With demand generation, the focus in driving value is not just with the 5% currently in market, but you're also designing marketing programs for the 95% that are not looking to buy right now. And mm -hmm. those programs are focused on building brand awareness, trust, credibility, because you want to create demand for your company and your products and ultimately capture it. And if it's done well, demand generation kind of flips the table and you have these prospects who they know who you are they trust yeah. you they like you when they're in market to buy they're going to ask you for a sales meeting and they're going to invite you into their buying process and as you can imagine when the tables are flipped and someone's saying hey i want to talk to you versus the sales team chasing them and saying we'd like to talk to you yeah they're much higher quality leads, which that's what salespeople want for marketing, right? Like leads that are ready to buy that are not going to be this 18 month sales cycle that ends in disappointment for everybody. They're going to yeah. have shorter sales cycles and they're going to have higher close rates and overall lower customer acquisition costs. So if you're playing the high growth game, that doesn't happen overnight. And demand generation, I always throw this out because I want to set realistic expectations for people. This yeah. is not a silver bullet. This is not a, I turned on my demand generation engine and the leads just started pouring in. I wish it yeah. worked that way. It doesn't. <laughs> but yeah. it is a long-term strategy 
that it may take six months, 12 months, 18 months to start to see real meaningful traction from it. But once you build it and you continue to fuel it and you build up that audience, you're going to start to create that demand for your company in the market. It's going to ultimately be the catalyst to growth in the long term. I feel like lead generation is more of the short term game and demand generation is more of a long term game. And you've got to be able to balance both short term needs of the business and long term growth goals. Well, two things. One, I want to get to how you do that, how you balance that the short term. We need this yesterday goals versus the long term and getting people, execs and the whole team to be patient. And also, I just want to point out, I think that you have explained lead gen versus demand gen the best that I've heard. This has been a topic of conversation for so long now, like as it used to only be lead gen, right? And then demand gen came Mm -hmm. in as a term. And everyone was like, oh, it's interchangeable. And then there was like, no, it's very different. Yeah. <laughs> but, and there's, I've heard explanations, but you, I, th- I thought this was super clear on the difference. It's really, at the end of the day, I love the stats of the 5% versus the 95%. You're working with a bigger pool, but at the end of the day, you're driving hand raisers instead of just poor quality numbers for a dashboard. Right. So interesting. But yeah, so back to the question, I just wanted to give you those kudos because it, it's so well explained. Thank you. And then the question, how do we balance those short-term needs and goals versus the long-term growth and putting in the work knowing that's going to pay off in the long-term? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that's a struggle for a lot of organizations. Like Even if they're like, hey, what you're saying makes sense. Demand generation is the way we need to go. It's very unlikely for most organizations that, you know, as the marketing leader, you can go to the CEO and be and the board of directors and be like, okay, heads up, we're going to do demand generation now, which means we're going to turn off lead generation, which means in two years we'll be in a great spot, right? Because <laughs> again, I've been on the corporate side. We need leads. We need them yesterday. Help. We have to hit our revenue targets now. Yeah. So it's not a flip a switch and do one or the other. I think there needs to be a transition period where as you start to build up your demand generation engine, you're also still doing the lead generation simultaneously. But you've got to set realistic expectations with your leadership team, your CEO, your board of directors of this is a long-term strategy with demand generation. And we're eventually going to move away from what we consider lead generation today as we start to get traction with this. But it is going to take time and it is going to take an investment and we have to be patient to let this work because that Uh is a big mistake teams make is they don't have the patience. They give it three months. They're like, well, this didn't work. And they go back to what they feel like works, which is lead gen, right? And, And finding MQLs and quantity and passing them to sales. I think in the interim, you continue to do your lead generation programs because you have to be able to deliver something. But I think you also have to start putting that demand gen lens on it and recognizing like, if all we're focusing on is quantity, we're not Mm -hmm. doing the organization any favors because while on the surface, it feels like, wow, marketing is killing it. They're giving us lots of leads. I guarantee you sales is going to turn around when they're not closing them and saying marketing is not delivering us good leads. And so you have to look at the quality has to come over quantity. 
and you have to design mm-hmm. the programs. You know, like if you're using lead scoring, for example, it used to be like, let's say your lead score threshold is 50. As soon as a contact hits 50, they go to sales. Well, if they do a lot of activity engage with your content, that score can build up pretty fast, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're in market to buy. It means they're interested in your content and the topics that you're creating things yeah. on, right? So maybe you flip the thinking on it and instead of saying they hit 50, clearly they're ready to talk to sales. You look at it and make sure that there's what the intent is behind what they're doing. So if they're looking at content that has some indication of buying intent, that is going to be more meaningful than they're reading all our blog articles and they're clicking through on our emails and they're looking at our infographics and they're listening to our podcast. Mm-hmm. But if they're looking at the pricing page on your website and they're downloading your case studies and they're doing things that someone that's further down in the decision process would be doing, they should be rated higher. And those are the ones that I think are better lead to pass to sales so that they have some level of real opportunity in them. And they're not just chasing someone that is clearly not giving you any buying intent indicators yet in the market. And then over time, as you start to get traction with your demand gen engine and you start to see more inbound leads, you're going to start to see the outbound efforts will actually see better results as well, too, because there's more brand awareness and there's more trust in the market. But you're going to start phasing out what you'd call lead gen, and it's going to evolve into lead capture. Like, how are you capturing the demand that you have created in the market? So eventually the lead gen just kind of phases out as you start to get results. One question, do you think that every B2B client that you work with should host a podcast and run a podcast? <laughs> or is it very specific, only a few can- the candidates are meant to host the podcast? I'm not sure. How do you make yeah. that decision? Because of the branding and awareness being so important that came up. Right. That is such a good question. And one I have pondered in my mind, right? Because as we were talking about before we hit record... Launching a podcast is a very slow burn. Like if you think about it, if you can get someone to listen for 20 minutes and to come back and continue to listen, that is an incredible way to build that credibility and trust with those individuals and have it be more likely that if they're like, okay, now I have this need, I know who I'm going to call because I listen to these people. I like the way this company thinks. On the flip side, I think you need to know like your ideal customer profile, those type of companies, the type of buyer personas within those companies that you would sell to, how likely are they to listen to a podcast? Yeah. Because podcasts, our listenership is growing substantially, but there's still a lot of people out there not on board who are not listening, you know, and I think... If your audience isn't on there, you're never going to get traction with the right audience with a podcast. But if you find that there are podcast listeners in there, then I think it is a good investment. But I also think it really is a long-term investment. And I've heard different people who have 
very successful podcasts. Like, for example, I was a guest on Starista's podcast recently, and they had been doing mm-hmm. it for four years. It's a marketing nice. podcast. They now have about 68,000 downloads per episode. Wow. Wow. I know, right? I'm like, wow, what's your secret? He's like, we've been doing it for four years. Consistency. (laughs) Right. Right. Consistency. It's like finance, right? Personal finance success. Exactly. Like it it really is a slow burn. And someone else told me that Neil Patel was a guest on their podcast and he told them, stick with it. In three years, it will pay off. Three years, (laughs) right? Like, We're talking about playing the long-term game. Three years is a long time in the world of sales and marketing because you've got the, we need to hit our revenue targets this quarter. And so that's where Mm -hmm. you have to balance like those long-term strategies with how do you make sure in the short term until you're three years in and your podcast starts bringing all these incoming leads that you have other ways to help move the business forward. Yeah. So it all comes back to, like you said earlier, your ICP, really knowing your ICP and where they spend their time and consume content to make that decision yeah. on if a podcast is right for you or not. Right. Love that. Thank you, Deanna. I have so many more questions to ask, but we'll save it for <laughs> a part two another time. As a sign off, curious if you have one tip for fellow B2B marketers that you'd like to share and and part with today? Yeah. You know, the tip that I would give fellow B2B marketers, because I think we're all guilty of it, just because a tactic or a strategy worked in the past doesn't mean it will work today. I talked to so many marketers who are frustrated because they're like, at the last three companies did X, Y, and Z, and we grew substantially and it worked and it's not working anymore. And that is the reality for a lot of marketing teams is they're just not seeing the traction that they used to see with the same tactics. Marketing has to evolve because the way B2B prospects are buying has evolved. And like it or not, they're very resistant to talking to a sales rep early on in their decision process. And and they don't even want to talk to them a lot of times, 72%, even when they're ready to make that purchase. So as marketers, we have to think about how do we fill that gap and help get those people far enough in that decision process to be willing to talk to the sales rep. And so our role in that whole process has become even more amplified than it has before. And, you know, as long as you understand that and recognize it, I think you can build marketing strategies that can help them be successful. But if you continue to do the things that you've done in the past and you're not getting results, throwing more money at it to do more of the same, for example, digital advertising, it's not going to get you more results because doing the same thing and expecting different results is the definition of insanity, according to Albert Einstein. Exactly. (laughs) Good reminder for marketing. I feel like that comes up a lot. It's like, this has to work. We're going to make it work. Put more money into it. But sometimes you just have to let it go. And we want it to work so bad, right? Because (laughs) we're putting our hearts and souls into helping this organization succeed. And when it's not, it's, it's frustrating for everybody all around. Exactly. And it used to work. So it should again. I, I hear you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Deanna. You shared so many golden nuggets. And again, love your lead gen versus demand gen explanation. Crystal clear. Maybe it's a book. 
in the writing and the works <laughs> that you can write. That's the next yeah, one, right? You, you have know. a podcast, next write a book. But thank you. Yes. Such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate the opportunity. And thanks everyone for listening. If you like the show, like, share, review, share with a friend. Appreciate all the love. Thanks everyone. See you next time. <laughs>